Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 168. With a much-awaited conversation with someone I've been quoting since we launched this podcast, after getting to know his work on a deeper level, when I tuned into a video training series he conducted during the beginning of the pandemic to help people around the world to better understand how the brain works while under stress, I learned specific ideas on how to reach those who are most affected during and after those very difficult days from this video series that he created for educational purposes for people to view and share. I learned so much from this series that connected the dots for me with trauma and the brain while inspiring our episode 52 on igniting your personal leadership to build resiliency. Last summer, I reached out to American psychiatrist, Dr. Bruce Perry, who's currently the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, Texas, and an adjunct professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, with the hopes he'd come on the podcast and help us to dive deeper with an understanding of how traumatic events impact the brain. I was specifically concerned with the impacts of the pandemic generationally, because one of his trainings explained the research from families from the Katrina disaster in 2005, showing how the offspring of those families exposed to this level of stress response had an increase of substance abuse issues. I thought about the pandemic and how I was hearing about the increase in depression, anxiety, and substance use increasing, And I wondered if Dr. Perry could provide some ideas on how to reduce the impact that the pandemic was having on the world, our future generations, our educational systems. And he let me know he'd come on the podcast as soon as his next book that he was writing was complete. I understood as writing a book takes intense focus. So I went back to work and knew we would have a conversation in the future. This spring, I watched the release of that book he was writing and realized it was with Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience and Healing. And I knew when the timing felt right, I would reach out and have that discussion on his new book and knew he would answer all the questions that I had. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of you listening, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies that we can use to improve our own productivity in our schools, our sports, and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom, a student, or in the corporate space. Sometimes there's no such thing as timely. As the minute this book came out, the buzz hit social media, and everyone was posting about how important and timely the content was. And I couldn't miss the impact it was having on people from all different sectors around the world. I knew it. I had so many questions after that video series. And thank goodness Dr. Perry wrote this book that I knew would take a deeper dive into understanding the impact of trauma on the brain. 
I finally knew it was time to reach out to Dr. Perry when my good friend Ruthie, an educator, held up her phone as she passed me on the hiking trails and showed me she was listening to his audiobook, shouting back to me as she ran by, you had better interview Dr. Perry because every educator must read, understand, and implement this book. She was right. It was the right time. So I reached out to Dr. Perry's office that morning and booked the interview and I knew Dr. Perry would keep his word, and he did. I just didn't realize how difficult this topic was going to be as I dove into the book. I know that the pandemic has shown us that we need change moving forward in our schools, raising our children at home, and for future generations we're leading to thrive in the workplaces. So with this interview, I will take many deep breaths as the stories that illuminate this needed change are difficult from the very first few pages right to the end of the book. This book is for anyone with a mother, father, partner, or child who may have experienced trauma. And if you've ever had labels like people pleaser, self-sabotager, disruptive, argumentative, checked out, can't hold a job, or bad at relationships used to describe you or your loved ones, this book is for you or if you simply want to better understand yourself and others, this book is for you as well. Let's meet Dr. Bruce Perry and Steve Greener, Project Director from the Neural Sequential Network and uncover the power of asking what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you. Welcome, Dr. Perry and Steve Grainer. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and help others to learn more about the work you're both focused on at the Neurosequential Network and your most recent book, Dr. Perry, that you wrote with Oprah Winfrey, What Happened to You, that gave me what I was looking for, a deep dive into understanding the impact of trauma and our brain specifically for our future generations. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, before we get to the questions, and I had to narrow them down, there were many of them, but I'd like to orient our listeners to how you both began this work. And I want to begin with Steve, because your background with sports resonated a lot with me, with a lot of the posts that I see connected to Dr. Perry and Megan Bartlett and her work at the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport. And with all we hear in the media, and the fact that I have two young girls in competitive gymnastics, I just wonder what drew you to your work with the Neurosequential Network as a project director with Dr. Perry to open up. Well, thank you. I, I'm happy to answer. First, what drew me was our friendship. Um, we, we've been friends since 12 years old. We've been track teammates since then. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what, what drew me, I, I guess, I, I, Bruce didn't even tell me he was coming to my community, but I... He showed up one day and I saw it in the paper. And of course, I have to go because it's Bruce. And and I do the training on the neurosequential model. I was really nervous for him because he was my friend. And in five minutes, I was nervous for me because I didn't know anything that he was teaching very well. But what I recognized immediately as both a teacher and a coach is, why don't I know this? <laughs> I wish I had a buck for every teacher who has said that to me since. Like, why weren't we taught about this? And as a 
I, I think what I loved about the sports side of it is I understood Bruce better as a coach than I did as a teacher. I understood his model and the way of, of therapy, the sequential way of therapy, much better as a coach, and then was able to maybe apply more of my coaching to my actual teaching. So it was a, it was an immediate, you know, me immediately recognizing how important this model was. And I didn't know it, and I wanted to know more. And even though I've known Bruce since I was 12, I didn't know everything he was teaching. And uh, I know it a lot better now. <laughs> well, that's exactly why I launched the podcast. It was back in 2014. I was given grant funding to take my work into the schools. And an educator said, you've got to add brain science to this. And he started pulling books off his bookshelf. And I started to figure out, well, how am I going to do this? This was way over my head. So I tuned into Dr. Perry's work to kind of help me bridge the gap, which is, you know, it's been a year since I've been asking for him to come on the podcast. And he said, I'll come on as soon as I finish writing this book. And here you are. So thank you for keeping your word that, that you said a year ago. I appreciate you both being here and uh, for sharing this because educators all over the, the world are reading this book. And what I wanted to do today was to kind of see if we can bridge the gap for people that might've read it and make sure that we've all understood it and are applying it. So does that, does that make sense for both of you? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, very good. And so Dr. Perry, my opening question for you, I've got to go back and ask you about your friendship with Oprah because she reached out to you in 1989 and you're working in your lab and someone said, oh, Oprah's calling and you said, yeah, right, take a message. And you thought they were joking. And so- I, I just I, Steve, I thought it was Daryl Anderson. <laughs> I thought it was Daryl. Daryl's a friend of ours who's always okay. doing pranks and has oh. a great voice to imitate people. So I thought Daryl, my friend, but from back home in North Dakota was pranking. Me. No way. And so I'm like, yeah, right. You know, I just hung up. That's and, hilarious. Uh, and then they call back another time. I, 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 I had to sort of shorten the real story in the book. But in this, the second call, I, I'm like, it said, I don't know how you're doing this, Daryl, but, you know, tell Daryl, if this isn't Daryl, tell Daryl it didn't work. And I'm tired and, and don't bother me. And, I, and oh anyway. Oh, so. that's hilarious. That's even funnier than, than the story yeah. in the book. But so, so, and then you talk about in your book that you're always trying to make connections with how trauma impacts the brain and you were never quite getting it right. So I wondered what you learned from your time with Oprah. Her reflections were pretty difficult to read for me. I was always wiping my eyes reading her mm -hmm. sections. But what did you learn from her stories with all her interviews connected to the work you've been doing your whole career? You know, one of the things that I keep learning, and it's funny how we, how lessons, you have to relearn lessons a lot. Um, but one of the things that Oprah has always been really good at, and I, I, I still have to relearn it all the time, is how important stories are to communicating information. And She's always been very good at that. She's always been very good at, at eliciting people's stories and then finding the one point or one concept that sort of is going to, you know, emerge from the story that people can walk away with. And those of us who are sort of in the academic teaching world, you, you grow up with this idea that you want to teach concept, fact, concept, fact, concept, fact, concept, and maybe put a little bit of a story in there. 
but in reality, what I've learned from Oprah again and again and again is that you don't ever want to tell, you can't tell everybody everything you know. And so you need to resist the temptation to sort of tell too much. So if you get one sort of the moral of the story is, or the concept of the story is, that's wildly successful and it sticks. And Oprah's good at that. And I, I learned that from Oprah, from watching her interview people, um, from watching her sort of be able to sh- sort of see through all of the fog and the, all kinds of stuff. Because a lot of times there's all kinds of stuff that's either titillating or, or over- emotionally overwhelming, but she's very good at sort of crystallizing that and pulling out a, a concept. And I think that's what really good storytellers do. And that's what really good teachers do. And I keep learning that lesson that, you know, I can have an opportunity to talk to a bunch of physicians who are used to hearing factoid, factoid, seeing data tables, seeing charts and everything else. But they're just like every other person. They're going to remember the, the story that you told and not all of the charts you showed. So. Well, I'm never going to forget Oprah's story. And it, it stuck with me at the end of the book. It brought everything together. And I knew Oprah had a difficult life, but when you read it in the pages of the, her book, how she explains it, it's a whole new world. And, and I just loved how she brought your brain science to life with her understanding. It was a very powerful way to learn this information. You're right with the story. I've heard from a lot of people who've read the book that they, and we, I, sort of crafted this intentionally to have rhythm in the book, you know, to get kind of intense and then to back off and to get intense and then to back off. And, and w- this is something that Steve and I talk about all the time that we learned from sports, you know, and we did high intensity training, you know, people use that term now, but we were doing that interval training back in the day. And we l- learned all about that, that, you know, you run hard 200 and then you rest for 400 and then you run hard 200 and then you rest. And that's just, that is that rhythmic kind of dosing of stress is something that leads to resilience and it leads to the capacity to tolerate emotionally intense stories like the, the, the work that she talked about or emotionally or cognitively difficult concepts like some of the neuroscience. So when the neuroscience got too intense, we intentionally had Oprah come in and sort of quiet things down. And then when Oprah's stuff got too intense, we just shifted and broke from that and did a little bit of, you know, neuroscience. And so it was a, we we were very, tried to be intentional about the way we built rhythm into the book. Wow, Steve, like I've got to ask you because I finished reading the book this morning and my eyes were red and, you know, with Oprah's story. And then I went for a run and I thought I better, you know, get ready for this interview. And I was running as hard as I could. So how, with your connection with sports, how do you see this panning out in the world with people being regulated and dysregulated with sports? Well, I, I really took the lessons from sport, Andrea, and, and tried to apply it immediately to my classroom. Um, the couple of things that, that Bruce referred to, one thing, um, it was rhythm. I, I really wanted to add more rhythm and movement to my actual classroom activities. Now, I knew those regulated kids in sports, just like Bruce explained in our, we understood track practice. We understood the concept of work and rest. 
work and rest. But we weren't doing a great job of that in the classroom. And I certainly wasn't doing a great job of that in the classroom, not, not as well as I could have. So I took on those two things very seriously, the rhythm of exchange in the classroom and, and movement to add um, just to add capacity for a kid's ability to remember things and to learn new things. So in the same way that you went for a run to prepare for this interview, I had my kids going for walks to prepare for the next bit of learning that we were going to do. And we did it in the middle of class. Um, unheard of before my training. Um, but then I, I realized it was all possible. And it made me think about my first year as a school teacher. I had a behavioral class. There were 30 kids and I burned out after that first year, but I didn't know how to control them. But the only thing I knew how to do was to tell them to do a lap around the school. And that was the only way I like I could have been fired for that. I don't even know if anyone from my district will ever listen to this interview, but I would take them outside. And the only way I could get them to sit in their chairs was to say, OK, run around the building and then let's go sit down and do our work. And I had no idea what I was doing. I just that was the only way I knew how to keep control of the class. You know, and the irony, Andrea is sorry. Sorry, Steve, but the, the irony is we all have run into is that in many schools, they take away opportunities to go get regulated on recess if a kid is behaviorally acting mm -hmm. out, yeah. which is just the exact opposite of what you wanna do. Or they're falling behind with their work. So let's sit in and skip recess and catch up and right. Right. missing this opportunity. So let's just, if we could, we've got a really good basis of why we need this. If we could just go to the very beginning, I picked the beginning of the book as the main focus for today, because many of us have not had this training in brain science and neuroscience, just like Steve and, and, and I, and a lot of people reading the book are probably thinking, well, how can I make sure I apply this and connect the dots? So it first came out to me with the, the question where Oprah opens the book saying she believes that the acorn contains the oak. And through her work with Dr. Perry, she says, if we want to understand the oak, it's back to the acorn, we must go. Now, that's kind of like a deep thing to hear about. But I heard my mentor, Bob Proctor, talking about the oak and the acorn when I was in my late 20s, understanding that there's this pattern plan in the acorn, we've got to understand it. And back then I was like, what is he talking about? But then here it comes out in, with Oprah talking about it. Why is it so important for us to think back to our genes and maybe even generations of our genes to understand why people behave the way they do and maybe understand this acorn in ourselves? Steve? That'll be you. That'll be you, my friend. <laughs> Paper, rock, scissors. All right, I'll do it. If it's genetics, um, it's Bruce. <laughs> okay. So one of the amazing things about our species is that we've got genetically, as a species, we have contained within our collective DNA all kinds of amazing gifts, including a lot of these brain-related capabilities. But not every one of these genetic gifts is given to every person. So everybody has, out of the total collective of what you could get, we get some portion. And then out of that portion that is you, uh, 
we only express some part of that. And the parts that we express are determined by our developmental experiences. So for example, you know, we're speaking English to each other, but both of us, all three of us have the potential to speak Russian. But because we never had any early developmental experiences with those sounds and that, those words and those sentences, we never built that genetically, that genetic potential to speak Russian into a functional capability. Now that's kind of an obvious example, but the truth, it's the same thing with, you know, I don't have the, the current motor capability to manipulate a joystick like my nine-year-old grandsons. I can't play the piano like my wife. Uh, you know, there's, there are a whole range of things, both motor, cognitive, and social-emotional capabilities that are unexpressed in many, many people. And one of the things that I think is really important to appreciate is that so many of these foundational capabilities that allow us to succeed, that allow us to read and respond to people appropriately, that allow us to understand that when someone gets a certain look, that means they're crestfallen and that something has happened that's hurt them. And that ability to be attuned to that relational environment is something that isn't automatic. It requires repetitions. And so if you don't have social emotional learning opportunities, those capabilities don't evolve. And if you don't have that capability, when you go into a workplace, you're going to be an insensitive worker and, and supervisor, and you're not going to succeed the way you, you could have otherwise. And so understanding the, the way our earlier experiences in life express these capabilities and un, allow us to unfold our potential or not can be really, really important to thinking about policy, practice, programs, and so forth. And generationally, because I never thought about it, you know, we learn, well, this happened in my life, but I never thought about what happened before my parents and grandparents. And now we hear that, that this is important. How does that tie in? Well, it's interesting. Most people don't think about it very much, but almost everything that we do is something that's heritable. Um, and it, which means that it's been passed from one generation to the next. Not necessarily genetic, but you can pass things from one generation to the next by providing intentional behavioral interactions. So again, we intentionally teach, speak to our children in English. That's a non-genetically mediated capability. And so the same thing happens with within certain cultures with regards to the way you use your hands when you communicate or not. You know, what, what does eye contact mean? In some cultures, it, it's, it's very different than our culture. And so the same thing can happen with the development of beliefs or behaviors or even internal physiological response patterns that are passed from generation to generation to generation that have their origins in major catastrophic experiences of your people, for example, mm -hmm. or a, a, a family uh, heritage disaster. You know, some families, for example, let's say that there's a particularly shameful thing that happened four generations ago, and the family learns to communicate in ways that ignore this elephant in the room, so to speak. 
that style of communication gets passed from generation to generation to generation. And so what it's not always the same kind of elephant in the room, but there's this tendency to completely ignore very obvious family problems and manage them in a way that is in the long run sort of uh, maladaptive and so forth. And we, so we, you can sort of trace all of these behaviors and practices, good practices and bad practices across, across many generations. It's almost like, you know, you pass family recipes and from generation to generation to generation, you pass family uh, practices and behaviors from generation to generation. And all of these things influence who we are in, in the present. And then thinking about as we're parents or teachers, how we wanna change those for our families and for our students that will be leaders of the next generation. We wanna make sure we don't Absolutely. carry it on the bad ones, right? Yeah, you know, and Andrea, one of the big areas of focus with our NM Sport project is that there was this idea about coaching that involves sort of shaming and you know uh, punishment and humiliation and and we know that that's not an optimal way to elicit the performance capabilities of an athlete or to train somebody and so part of what we're trying to do is help shift some of the perspectives about those things some of those transgenerationally inherited ideas about what's good about coaching. And just as you said, like we do the same thing with parenting, we do the same thing with education. And, and um, part of what, what as a group we're trying to do is take some of these really simple but important concepts about how people function and look at the implications for the systems that we have and then and make some changes that will lead to better, better outcomes and, and the hope that we won't transmit as much garbage to the next generation. You know, I, I want, I'm just going to branch off of the word hope that Bruce said, because this is what really was important to me. As educators, we often think certain kids are doomed, that they are just going to be what they are, and we don't have a chance with them. And no matter what we do when they go home, it all gets undone. Um, and I, I've found in, in learning about this model and in using it, that's just not true. Um, there's, there is a plasticity that our, our marvelous plasticity that our brain has that if we do the right things, and I think it does include rhythm and movement and, and the fundamental things Bruce is talking about, change, real change does happen. And, you know, some of the, the, the negatives are overcome because at, at, on, at the same, on the same, by the same token, I also love our teaching that we get about anthropology and how important it is to respect how the brain developed over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. That's been really revealing to me also as an educator. And, and I appreciate that from Bruce because respects history, but also respects the present and the possibility of change. Definitely. Like when I go back to when I was a teacher in the classroom, it was over 25 years ago and trauma was never considered a factor in, in the person's health. And I would look across my classroom and I would honestly think, what is wrong with these kids? Because I had no training. I wish I had this understanding back then. Who knows where things would have gone. But 
Dr. Perry, when you were writing this book, what was your vision to help others become brain aware and make these changes across all sectors of work? So we, we see the classroom, we can see sport, we can see the corporate world. What was your vision for this whole book and idea? You know, it kind of goes back to the origin of the book, Andrea, that the, uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, I've known Oprah for a long time, and we've been involved in a, a lot of different projects. And um, one of the things that happened that must be five years ago now, she was a special correspondent for 60 Minutes. And she was doing a story about her hometown. And one of the programs there as she was doing the story and, and talking to people, she, they mentioned that they were trained by me. And she said, really? You know, cause she, she's like, Oh, Bruce, you know, I know Bruce. Oh. <laughs> and so she called me and said, Hey, you want to be a talking head on this 60 minute show about what we're doing in Milwaukee. And I'm like, all right. So I did an interview with her and you know, it's, you know how that goes. You do an hour interview and two minutes are on. And anyway, afterwards it, you know, she's, she was very moved by the experience. And part of what I think happened was that even though I'd been talking to her for 30 years about this, when she finally was done doing her show, which it's hard for people to appreciate, she used to do two and sometimes three shows a day. And she was so busy. And one of the things that we teach about in this model is state dependent functioning, right? So when you're busy, hungry, thirsty, cold, sleep deprived, have a million things going on in your life, you literally sort of immobilize and make inefficient parts of your cortex. So that kind of reflective part of your brain and the part of your brain that connects dots and has aha moments, it just um, basically is made less efficient. And so you tend to be able to do all kinds of things that you're good at, but you don't tend to kind of build, expand your comfort zone. You don't tend to be very reflective and creative. So once her show stopped, and she talks about this, uh, is that she had much more time to be reflective about stuff. And so I think that it just, you know, having that brief little conversation, and then she ties it to when I finally said to her, you know, because she was saying, what's wrong with these kids? Do they have all this and they have all. And I said, well, it's really not, that's not the question. The question is kind of what happened to them? You know, what's, mm -hmm. and, and, and then she's like, oh, I get it. And, and from, so anyway, for her, that was sort of this, this inflection moment. But what happened was Bob Miller, who's the publisher for Flatiron Books, which is a publishing house uh, that's part of Macmillan that Oprah has a relationship with, called her and said, do you think Bruce would be willing to write a book about you know, what happened to you, what trauma? And, and uh, so she asked me and I said, I've already written a book about this. And he said, nobody's gonna listen to me anymore. I said, you should write a book about trauma. And she said, I can't write a book. I said, well, let's write it together. And, <laughs> and she's like, okay. And the intention was that, you know, it's Oprah's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, there's people that hate Oprah for ridiculous reasons. And then there's people who love Oprah for equally ridiculous reasons. That's sort of positive transference, negative trans, it's all. But, but the reality is Oprah is a good communicator. And Oprah is going to reach more people than I could ever re reach in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so the intention was to create something that people who have not really been exposed to this will be able to kind of get an introduction to some of the concepts. Now, I, I did take a deeper dive than, I, than Oprah wanted me to. 
but we went back and forth on this stuff. I said, listen, I, I, I know you think people don't want to read these big words, but what we want to make, we want these big words to become part of the po general population's general body of knowledge. And I said, if anybody can do it, it's because you can do it. And so that's what we did. She didn't, she thought that we had too much science. At one point, she just starts laughing, shaking her head going, oh my God, I never thought that I'd write a book with graphs in it. <laughs> so, with words like I, diencephalon. Yeah. Right, right. So the, the intention really was to reach people in a way that you know people that you know all kinds of people that are in trauma they they know about our work or they read our work they like it or they don't but they've read it mm -hmm. and but there's like that's a tiny fraction of the total population and so the idea was to write something that was truly for the general population so that anybody should be able to pick up this book and get something out of at least parts of it and i think that because we did have that sort of rhythmic quality to it, there are parts where I know people just say, I, the science part, I just kind of glazed over and, and, but then they go back to it. Mm -hmm. And, they, and it's, so it's interesting. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, listen, I, I got the audio version. And then after I listened to it, I, I needed the book version and I go back to different parts and reread it. And so I think we're, at least with some people, we've, we've met our objective. Yeah, because people are having book studies on your book. Yeah. And yeah. it was actually an educator that was on the hiking trails and she held up her phone and she was reading your audio book. And it was in, it, it had been, your book had been released and I thought I'm gonna give him a little bit of time before I start bugging him about bringing him <laughs> on and <laughs> let, him, let him get it out into the world a little bit. And she held up her phone and said, I hope you're interviewing Dr. Perry. And I could see she's listening to the book with her teacher friends and discussing it. And so that kind of brings me to my next question, because I know a lot of educators understand the three parts of the brain, like from Dr. Dan Siegel's work, where he holds up, holds up his hand and he's got the reptilian brain, the emotional brain, and the cortex. But then when you come to your tree of regulation, there's a little bit more, and I liked how you dove deeper into it. But can you explain for us who might not be brain aware, the other parts of the brain that you introduce, there's four parts, and then you've got the core regulatory networks. How did they all tie in so that we can understand how to go beyond the three parts of the brain? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the struggles that a lot of us have that are, that are trained in medicine or trained in neuroscience is that we, we have to figure out how to simplify and, and then communicate some of this content. And so there are a couple of different versions of simplifying the brain. One that we use is this upside down triangle version. There's a couple of different drawings in the book about that. And, but that's kind of just, you know, when we talk about the brains organized in this sequential way, the lowest parts of the brain stem, and you go up through these other areas to get to the top part of the brain, um, that's useful, but I think the part that's really important that we try to communicate to people is that there is a set of really important core regulatory networks that originate low in the brain and collectively they reach every part of the body. And because of that, they play this major role 
in organizing and integrating incoming information and outgoing responses. So it's kind of Grand Central Station, you know, it's information comes in, information goes out. Uh, and it really is where we, you know, a lot of the managing of our everyday life takes place through these systems, which, um, and so that's one key point. The second key point is that all incoming information from, you know, when you interact with somebody, you hear, you see, you smell, all that stuff that comes into your brain, the first place it stops is lower in the brain. It doesn't go right up to the smart part of your brain. So it, we are organized as, as human beings to basically respond to incoming information even before we completely understand what it is. So human beings are built like other mammals. We are more reactive than we are reflective. Now we have the gift of being reflective but we can only be reflective and use this remarkable cortex fully when we feel safe. And this is an absolute essential uh, and actually well-known observation for educators. They, all educators understand that if kids feel like they belong, if they feel like this is a safe environment, a safe relationship, they're gonna be much easier to teach and they'll absorb the content much better. But one of the things about this sort of the neurobiology part of what we teach is Rather than just saying to teachers, you know, learning flows from safety, we explain the mechanism so that they can understand that, oh, to get to safety, we need, let's try some rhythm. Or to get to safety, let's make sure that we pay attention to the relational environment. And so if we explain why, how you get to safety, then it helps teachers do some really creative things in their classroom. Right, Steve? I mean, for me, that's been the really fun part of this. Yeah, that, that was the inspiration for me. Uh, honestly, Andrea, all, all I really needed from, well, I need a lot from Bruce when he's teaching, but what I really needed as a teacher were just the two things he just said. I needed to understand how the brain is organized and the core regulatory. I just needed to understand that's the operating system that, that not only are my kids under that system, so am I. And so are my fellow staff members and my principal and everybody in, involved in this system is, is living under that system. So that was incredibly important for me to understand that to, to have that system in order meant paying more attention to those core regulatory networks and the lower part of the brain. That was essential for me as a teacher. And then to understand how stress affects that system. Those are the two things I... I took to the learning bank right away and said, I can do something about this as a teacher in a creative way. And that's how I started. Just so he, he just to be clear, Steve actually took these concepts and developed the neurosequential model in education. I mean, he, he wow. it's, it was, it's Steve's invention. <laughs> and, you know, he, he took these concepts and operationalized them in educational settings and, and kind of, he helped me kind of do what I talked about earlier about taking all this. I had all the complex stuff. Steve was very good at sort of helping me translate it and turn it into stuff that was useful and practical for educators. Steve, that's phenomenal because in 2014, when an educator said you need to add brain science to this, 
Trust me, I went on the internet to look for who had the idea of putting this in the classroom. And I thought, well, maybe this is too much for me to, to take on. But then I found Dr. Perry's work and started quoting him years ago and bringing in this idea in. So thank you for what you're doing for education, because this is really where my starting point came from and why I do the podcast. Well, we love that. And and I think Bruce made us aware, uh, just another sidelight here, but Bruce made us aware early on that education might provide the best dosing of, of good therapy for kids that, that we can possibly give them because we have a lot of hours, we have a lot of human connections. We can give a lot of repetitions to allow for some of the changes that we're talking about. So I, I think it was Bruce's um, understanding of how important education could be in the whole process that that drove us to really keep working hard at this. Love it. Love it. So this is kind of bringing me to my last question uh, on the diagrams and the upside down triangle. But it started, Dr. Perry, I came across your work when Dr. Lori Desital started to quote you. That's how I found you. And she was always talking about um, how stress brains react in the classroom with the um, regulate, relate and reason and that we can't get to the decision-making part or the smart part of our brain without being regulated and a dysregulated teacher can't regulate a student. I had all these quotes that I was using, but then I came, when I came across you and your neurosequential network training, I always wondered what is this neurosequential network? Like that seemed to be like, I didn't understand where the name came from. And then Oprah talks about it in the book. And I thought I had this big aha moment. And that's really why you named your company Neurosequential, right? Because we have to regulate, relate, and reason. Is that the whole idea behind your work? Well, that's that's a sort of a core element of the work. And you know, that sequence of engagement is so important if you're in the corporate sector, if you're in the military, if you're a cop, if you're a parent, if you don't adhere to that, if you don't understand it, human interactions can be very confusing. You know, that's why parents who are trying to parent before they regulate the child, right? You know, they're trying to get them to follow directions before the kid's regulated, they get frustrated. And, but it's because until the lower part of the brain feels regulated enough for you to be connected. And that, and then through that connection, you can get to the core, the thinking part of the brain, the cortex, uh, you're just going to be making a lot of loud noise and usually making things worse. And so this happens everywhere. It happens in coaching, teaching, the military, everything. So it is one of the fundamental concepts that sort of regulate, relate reason, heuristic is one of the easiest to teach and one of the easiest to kind of anchor yourself on, you know, once people sort of internalize it and they'll be in an interaction, uh, whether it's in school or somewhere and they'll rec they'll catch themselves and they'll go, Oh, all right. I'm not regulated. I need to take a breath. All right. What, what, what can I do to get this kid regulated? Do I need to take a walk with him? Do I need to give him a chance to go read? Should I let him put on his headphones and listen to music? What, 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 how am I going to get him regulated enough? to then reconnect with him uh, and then reason with him. So the, it's interesting the parents always are, you know, people will worry about accountability and, you know, how is he going to live in the world if he doesn't, it's well, 
that's a good point. I mean, if he keeps acting like this, he's not going to do well. But you're not going to be able to teach him anything until he can hear you. And so it's really about timing. It's, it's not that you shouldn't say, don't do that. It's just when you say it. You know, when you're sitting there playing cards with somebody or playing Uno, it's probably a better time that he's calm, now that he's calmed down and he's winning Uno. <laughs> True. That, that you just throw out that, you know, that whole thing this morning, that didn't work out very well for you, did it? You know, <laughs> what it, can you think of an alternative way that you might want to get what you need? Uh, you know, and just it's it, instead of yelling at the kid in the morning when it happens, talk about them with it later on, like give them a chance to reflect on it. And, um, you know, so that's a big part of what we do. That, now, we intentionally named the model neuro, sequential, and model. Neuro because we're interested in the brain, because that's the lens we use. Sequential because that's such an important part of both understanding development and processing the present, but also healing. That mm-hmm. You need to sort of rebuild and heal somebody who has trauma-related problems in a way that is replicating the normal developmental process. And then model, because we recognize that it's a model. I mean, we're, it's not perfect and it's changeable and we've, we keep changing it. We're, we're intentionally, not only are we evidence-based, but we're evidence-generating and we keep improving based upon feedback and new learnings. And so if you looked at what we do now to certify people compared to what we did 10 years ago, it'd be very different. But now the core concepts would be present but they're taught better, the images are better, the examples are better, the, the way we introduce it is better. And so we're, we keep learning. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of bringing this into a close because we've, we've got such a, a good picture of what you do over there. There was one last question I had because I, I created a graphic on it and I thought it was important for people in the position of leadership. So whether you're leading a company, you're lead, a leader in the classroom, it's the power differential. And to be aware of, if we're not aware of this power that we have when we're in a position of authority, we are you know, missing the boat on some things. So I just wonder if you could both explain, Steve, from you know, being in the classroom, how to get your students to connect with you better with that power differential, and maybe Dr. Perry on where you've seen this be important. I'll give you a quick story. I had uh, completely mishandled a student before I went to Bruce's training. Um, I had won the power because I, I had, I knew as a teacher, I had all the power. I mean, I was bigger, stronger, smarter, connected. And it was a new student who had transferred in and I was going to show him who's boss. And I did. And it was messy and it was ugly and it was, it didn't accomplish a thing except I got him to comply. And that's all. Uh, he didn't learn anything. He didn't get a skill until I related to him. After I went to Bruce's training and learned about the power differential, I related to him a lot differently. And I got my chance when he got in trouble again with a substitute teacher, I got had my chance. Now I got to talk to him again in, in much the same fashion. Only this time I asked him to come out in the hall with me. I got down on my knee I knelt beside him, I quieted my voice, and I told him exactly the same thing I might have told him in a different situation. He just nodded and said, thank you, Mr. Grainer. Yes, Mr. Grainer. 
And I started laughing inside because I thought, Bruce, it works. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, it, and it was wonderful. I, I, I had a better relationship with him from then on and never, ever again had to pull a power move on him because I had learned to do it differently. So I, I want to give Bruce the last word, but I took that concept and applied it immediately. And, I, and it was magical in the way that it worked. Now, I don't think it's so magical. I think it's what I would come to expect. And, you know, uh, I, I love hearing those stories like that because I, you know, the the concepts are meaningless without application, right? I mean, you can know the secret of life, but if nobody knows what it is, it's not going to have any impact. So that's when I have the opportunity to, to hear, and we do hear a lot, right, Steve, from, yeah. you know, from teachers where they go, oh, my gosh, you know, my classroom's turned around and it's it's very gratifying. But the, the power differential thing is very important and very interesting because it's such a, a universal pervasive element of human interaction. And so we talk about this a lot in the corporate sector. We talk a lot of, about this when we teach law enforcement. We talk a lot about this when we're trying to help uh, people who are coaches, therapists, and so forth. And first of all, is understanding it. You know, that when two people are interacting, there's this sort of this mutually unconscious process now, frequently, the person at the bottom of the power differential starts to become conscious that they are, have less power and they feel more dysregulated. So the bigger the power differential, the more you're sort of pushing the other person at the bottom along this sort of fight or flight or dissociative continuum, you're sort of making them feel a little bit more stressed. And so <clears throat> if the intention is to get compliance, it's okay to maintain the power differential. So there are times, for example, I think a teacher needs to establish uh, a, and a, the power differential in the midst of a school crisis, right? Fire alarm goes off. The teacher needs to step up and basically demonstrate dominance and, and create the power differential. So these kids who are feeling overwhelmed, they're in an inescapable, overwhelmingly threatening situation, that pushes them into a state of compliance. Then they will follow the teacher and do what the teacher says. This isn't where you get down on your knee and talk with them and let, let Billy kind of collaboratively decide, should we leave the room? You know, what do you think? You want to go out the right door, the left door? The house? You should probably decide soon because it's burning out there. Now, that's not the time to do that. This is time to sort of go, This is, listen, follow, do exactly what I say, follow me out like a bunch of little ducks. Let's go. And that, so you do want to be able to use the power differential in a positive way. But you also want to recognize that if you really want to get to the cortex of somebody. So when somebody's like this and they're partially shut down and they're ready to be compliant, that's fine in certain circumstances. If you want them to be able to internalize new content, reflect on previously stored content and be creative and be optimally productive, then you need to keep the power differential a little bit more. Uh, minimized. But it's something that honestly, people in corporate environments very rarely understand. And people like in the child welfare system, the place where we see the power differential blow up all the time is when you've got a bunch of caseworkers, they're in the same unit. And then all of a sudden they promote one of them mm -hmm. to be the supervisor. And that supervisor isn't given any training, any supervision, any mentoring. And all of a sudden they don't 
appreciate that there's a power differential that's been created between them and their old friends. And now they don't get it when, you know, all kinds of bad conflictual stuff can happen, which I'm sure Andrea, you've seen happen a million times when you do and when you teach people about this, but that's kind of the, the thing about the power differential. If you understand it and you learn how to identify situations where it's likely to be a major factor, then you can sort of plan against it and, uh, and figure out things to diminish it like Steve did. And So just to kind of bring this into a close, Dr. Perry and Steve Grainer, what would be your final thoughts on the work that you're doing at Neurosequential Network? Something that I haven't asked, helping us to all become brain aware in many different sectors. What would be your thoughts for this? I'll give a quick one that has been uh, kind of in the forefront of my mind lately is um, we got to take care of our adults first. <laughs> we really got to work with our leadership. We got to work with our education staffs to make sure, and Andrew, you referred to this earlier, to make sure they're regulated and to make sure they're feeling safe and to make sure they have the confidence to move forward in these really challenging times. So we're really focusing on, on helping our adults first. Not, not, we know the kids will get helped, but we really are focusing on staff first in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, I, and sort of a more overarching long-term thing to think about is, um, and going back to what Steve said earlier, I, I'm hopeful that when people learn about some of these things, they can take their own experiences and training and creativity and apply them in really unique, positive ways. And we've seen this happen. And I'm, I'm confident that whether it's through us or other people that are teaching these ideas, that we can make our schools healthier environments. We can make them more uh, uh, places where people can s celebrate diversity and and, and manage flexibility and developmental sensitivity in ways that lead to opportunities where all kids have an opportunity to express their potential, not just that uh, kids that have meet certain specific capabilities. And so I, and we do see this happening. And, and so we're, we're hopeful that when we take care of the adults that are involved in planning and direct service delivery, and we and we enrich them that they'll be able to in turn create uh, improvements in service delivery and that'll result in improved outcomes for kids and families so we're plugging along we're, we're we we actually intentionally have a transgenerational long game perspective on the way we do these things and so um you know, we may see incremental improvement in a year or three years or five years, but we're really, our, our ultimate gaze is like 50 years from now, 100 years from now. That's what we're focusing on. Oh, well, I want to thank you both so much. I could stay and ask you questions all day, but uh, I know that all the answers are within the book and also on your neurosequential network trainings, which is where I found you. So that's really where the sparks and everything started to connect for me. Um, 
and I just want to thank you both for the work you're doing for putting these trainings out there because I came on and started listening. I wasn't even sure if I was allowed to. I thought, what are these trainings during the pandemic? And I thought, I'm going to tune in. And then I, I thought, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be listening. But you said you put them out there for the world to help. And sure, I, there I was trying to trying to learn from you. So thank you for all the work that you're both doing out there. You're very well, welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for what you're doing. This is, um, you know, it's interesting. You'll probably reach 10 times as many people as a typical academic article. So um, that's good. And probably 100 times. You know. Yeah, that's kind of what was shocking to me when I launched the podcast. I had no idea when I look at the statistics of who's listening, 153 countries. So I thought I better make use of this and and just ask the big people who are doing big things because it's going out into the world. And I, I put the best effort in and I, I appreciate your time to help us to all make these shifts that we need to be brain aware, apply what's in your books and then make the changes happen because they're happening. Educators are sending emails all the time about how they're using this information and they were so excited to hear this interview. So I can't wait to, to release this. Well, I hope Great. I hope it's helpful and we look forward to any feedback you have. We're, we're all, we're, you know, like I said, we are always trying to get better. So, right. It's so a learning, a learning community and you're helping us. Right. And the only thing I don't want advice on is my wardrobe. Okay. So <laughs> don't, I have to say one of the funniest things about doing this whole post book announcement thing was I did all these podcast things with Oprah and, you know, book events, her people would tell me like, Oh no, you can't wear that. <laughs> They, they told me, oh, no, no, you got to change your background. I had to go, finally, I had to go basically almost get in a closet. And uh, and anyway, I have one shirt up there that's sort of Apple approved that I can put on when I do stuff. <laughs> anyway, I better go. Well, Dr. Perry, Steve Grainer, thank you so much. We'll be in touch with the final product. Thank you. Thanks, right. Thanks for the opportunity. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 